a Podcast One production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. Charlie Carrington is the head chef and owner of Atlas Dining in Melbourne. He's one of Australia's youngest chefs to ever win a chef's hat. In fact, he was just 22. Charlie is consistently inspired by his passion for travel and learning the flavours and techniques of new cultures. In fact, it defines the very restaurant that he opened. At the age of 15, Charlie told his parents he wanted to leave school and pursue a career as a chef. And to his surprise, they agreed. And he has since worked in Melbourne, London, Antwerp, San Francisco, Mexico City, San Paolo, Bangkok, Singapore, and even La Paz in Bolivia. For such a young guy, an amazing way to live your food dream. Charlie's travels inspired his concept for Atlas Dining, where every four months the cuisine and the menu changes. So far, Charlie has explored the food of Vietnam, Israel, Korea, and many, many more. And the reason I wanted to chat to Charlie is because young chefs like him are going to define how Australian cuisine moves forward. So here is Charlie Carrington. Charlie, thanks for coming in. The reason I want you to come in is because you're like the new blood, you know, this is this is going to be your Melbourne. It is now already. Yeah. But you're, you're a young head chef and, you know, your whole career is is in front of you. I think when you first came onto MasterChef, I go, really? Restaurant already? Yeah. How old were you when you opened Atlas? I was 22. Yeah. So it's bonkers, man. It's big move. like bonkers. I didn't even know what I was thinking at 22, but it wasn't about opening a restaurant. Why such clarity? Look, because I didn't finish school. All stupidity. I don't mind. Stu- you know. Stupidity is the best. <laughs> stupidity is the better word. I was about you, you beat me to it. Because um, I didn't finish school, I'd probably had a few more years, you know, in the workforce. I'd travelled a lot, and I was, you know, pretty inspired to do to do the restaurant. I think, and um, it was just a good time, a good opportunity, and I thought, you know, like why not? And um, obviously, with the concept of wanting to change cuisine and all that sort of thing, it made a lot of sense because you know I couldn't really do that elsewhere. So exp- to expand on that, might as well while you've mentioned it. Yeah. So basically, I did a big nine-month trip overseas, and I worked as a stagiaire, so I did like free work experience in nine different countries, and um, just loved it. Like it was just ten out of ten experience. You know, cooking, uh, meeting new people, trying new flavors. You know, like if, you know you've travelled a lot, you know what it's like when you travel overseas. It just blows your mind learning something new. So that was the idea. It's like, well, how do I keep doing that? But in a, you know, in a sort of way that makes it actually instead of just working for free in different restaurants around the world. So I um, came up with the idea and then I just, yeah, sort of went for it very naively. And, uh, you know, like prior to that, I didn't even know what, you know, bass was or how to payroll or I didn't even know what a break even meant. <laughs> so that's all those things were, you know, big, huge learning curves. But, um, you know, we started with very sort of, I don't want to say lucky because we worked for it, but we got a hat in our first month and that was like the thing that really cemented us. So that was, I think, week four. So um, we're talking about a chef's hat here and you're yeah. one of the youngest chefs in Australia to get a chef's hat, right? Yeah, like, and that, like, that was obviously the goal. Like, to, you know, and I was thinking, oh, you know, imagine year two if we got one, you know, it's all like that. And then you get it and you're like, oh, my God. So I've just realised there's people from overseas listening going, what's a chef's hat? It's actually, it's a, it's a guide. It was probably the Bible yeah. in Melbourne particularly because it, it, that's where it was based about... It's the benchmark. It's like the Michelin, I suppose. Exactly right, and like you know the, all, you know diners all around Melbourne. The first thing they go to the Good Food Guide. You know where are we going? It's a special occasion. It's my birthday. It's you know it's this, it's that. You know once you're in that 
sort of list, it really helps, as you can imagine. And well, how did you feel when you... Oh, was so just, you've opened a restaurant. How many weeks later? Four weeks. So what ha- what happened though is it's like we were actually like, you know, we'd had our little initial rush and it was like, okay, this is, you know, kind of good. And, you know, like if I looked back at like the financially, I'm sure we we're just burning like left, right and center. But at the time I had no idea. So I was like, okay. And then, you know, it was sort of September and September's like a sort of funny month. You got the footy and all that sort of stuff. So coming to the end of the month, it's it started to drop off a bit. And I was thinking, I was going, oh my God, like panic setting in a bit. And then, um, then I got like an email on the Monday night of the review that was coming out the next day and I just, I pretty much jumped through the ceiling. I was so excited to see, you know, an achievement like that. And then from there onwards, it was yeah. just bang. Who did you make the first call to? Uh, I remember calling my mum, I think it was about 11.30 at night and almost screaming through the phone of how happy I was. So, yeah. you know, when you have a goal to do something like that and it came a lot quicker than we had a hope, that was, it really just mm. set everything in motion, I think. But then the pressure's on, right? So you go back in the kitchen the following day, what are you, what are you thinking? Uh, oh, I go on to change the whole menu. <laughs> <laughs> get, rid of, get rid of half the team. <laughs> Why, go on, expand upon that. Why yeah. did you want to change the whole menu? Because now, now you've got other people's expectations to live up to, right? Well, that's it. And like, you know, what, when I view a hat, you know, if you go out to a restaurant, you're like, you know, it's a hatted restaurant, you have certain expectations and... You know, I think we were doing a lot of things right, but there's definitely a lot of things we could have improved on. So that was like, a, you know, you start to think, oh, my God. But it also gives you that sort of confidence to to go in and go, actually, maybe what we're doing is pretty good and we can, you know, develop it further. Did that take some time to realise or? Uh, yes, like yes and no, like because I was instantly sort of enthused to go in and go, you know, we want to push it further and make it better. But also, like, I think... You know, every time you change something, you sort of, you know, find, right, that worked, that didn't. How do I make that better? And, you know, we just continuously kept moving forward. So the concept of the restaurant is that you travel, you research. Yep. So do you close the restaurant while this is happening? Early days we did. Yeah. I'm lucky enough now to have a very good team who, you know. Because the rest of us in the industry are going, this kid's mad, right? You know yeah, that. Yeah, that I was, think we even told you. Yeah. George, you might have even rung George after MasterChef and said, so tell me, how does this thing work, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so you, you travel, you research. Yep. At the beginning, you close the restaurant, and then you come back yep. and deliver a menu based on your travels and experiences. And exactly right. And, yeah, so I usually try and have, like, go on the trip about a month before we do the menu. So it gives us a good three to four weeks to get it right. Um, change the wine list, the menu, like the crockery, everything about it. You know, we really try and make it, you know, a big, you know make a big deal out of it. And um, I think when we started, it probably was more like, it's hard to explain, but I think I feel like we were probably more like about the travel experience. And I think the more my cooking and stuff's developed, I'm more about like focusing on the actual cuisine and learning a bit more about it. Because like, you know, we we're doing say dishes where it was more like probably loosely inspired by where now I try and go a little bit deeper into like, what is the actual cuisine and how can I learn something about it? And, you know, actually almost like, you know, maybe like anything when you, as you develop, you probably start to simplify. And I feel like I've paired it back a lot. Because there's quite a weight I find that I try not to do it. I don't think I do it. But I'll learn something. It's like India, for example. Yep. I love India and, and I'll do it. And I, kn- I know that it's not authentic. I know that yeah. it's my version of. And regardless of how good I think it is, even if I think it's better than yeah. what I've tasted, to them it's never it, – because it means something different to them exactly to what right. it means to you. So it's never really – they'll always go, it needs a bit more or you forgot this yeah. or we never use that. And, and that's happened countless, countless times. But I think as we've progressed and – you know, we've tried to like, you almost look at like the classics with a lot more respect, I think, as, as you move on. Like when early days, it was like, how do we sort of make this our own? Now it's more like, how do we sort of make this beautiful and actually like give the guests the essence of what I experienced by trying that? 
So it's not, you know, you're trying to less trickery around it. Like, yeah. Yeah. So then how long do you leave that menu on? Uh, so it's every four months. That, so we go for four months, but I will change the dishes throughout it. Like definitely as I, you know, say if we start in winter, you're going to have, you know, a lot more stews, warming style dishes, and it might move into the, you know, spring or warmer months. And then we'll definitely start to freshen up the menu. It forces you to change, doesn't it? There's yeah. no laziness about this no. menu or sick because, you know, even established restaurants might have a number of signatures that are just there for long, you know, years. Yeah. And like, look, it's, there's something to be said that there's a real positive in that, like, if you have a signature dish, like guests, you know, you can expect it. They know what it's like. They, you they know, come back on, for they it. They come back for it. Yeah. yeah. Like, for us, like, we've put some dishes on and, like, you know, there's probably one from every cuisine that really stands out to me as, like, that could be a signature dish, but then it's gone. So it's a it's a double-edged sword in a way. Do you uh, do you lose energy? Because at some point, I mean, because you're working in the restaurant, yeah. you're running a business, and then you go, oh, I've got to go and do it again. Yeah, it's – I reckon it's – I know you're a young man, yeah, yeah. but there's got to be a point where you go, gee, I've got to do it again. Yeah, it's not it's not easy because, like, you know, like, like anything, you know, because – when you reinvent it every four months, you're sort of in a good, like you're in a good rhythm. You've got your costs right. You've got your, like your team right. The kitchen like setup is right. And then when you flip it on its head, like you need brand new dry store, retrain everyone, like get back in the rhythm. You know, it takes a couple of weeks to do that. It's not just a like. you got to buy equipment, I'd imagine. Everything, yeah. You go like, to a different country, they go, <laughs> yeah, we use this. And you go, I don't have that. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and like, oh, like any chef, you get carried away <laughs> buying stuff. You're like, oh, I need that. You, know, you probably don't need it, but you want it. But <laughs> How big's the storeroom full of stuff that you don't use? Like all under like our banquet seating. Like half the restaurant seats are all like those sort of banquet couch seating. And underneath is like full of everything, whether it's plates, equipment. It's crazy, yeah. So give us some, you know, because obviously you're, tra- I love the fact that you travel. I mean, I follow you obviously on Instagram and go, yeah. where's he gone? Where is he? Where did you go first? What was the first menu you put uh, on? Vietnam. Had you been to Vietnam before? No, I hadn't. But um, that was like a, it was such a good place to travel. But I reckon it was like one of those menus that Vietnamese cuisine, everyone knows something about it, especially in Melbourne. It's a big popular cuisine. So starting the restaurant with that cuisine, I reckon, was like, yeah, you've started at Mount Everest, sort of, you know, with people's Here knowledge. I am, shoot me. Is yeah, that what you're saying? pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was a bit like, you know, I was like, and, you know, people like were like expecting like rice paper rolls and things like that. And we're like, oh, my God, I'm not doing that. So that was a big like sort of, whoa. But, um, yeah, that was a really good one. Like, I feel like the ones for me that have been the most successful that I've really loved have been the ones that are a bit more like left of centre. Like, we did Israeli, which was number two. That was just awesome because people... I don't know, they sort of knew what it was, but they didn't, and then they're, like, willing to try. Where I found that, like, some of the ones where, like, when we did, like, Thai, for example, people really know it, so they're more they're more critical and looking for things. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, um. but, yeah, like, every everyone's, like anything, anytime you change, everyone stood out to me for a different reason of why I've really enjoyed it. So when you when you jump on a plane, yeah, do you have, a, like, a format? Uh, you go, right, this is what I'm going to do, and you follow the, the same kind of... What would you call it? You know, it's a regimental approach to land, yeah. hit the market, uh, yeah, like, meet a chef. I don't know. Like, what's your... Like, absolutely. Like, yeah, meet, meeting modus chefs. Modus operandi would be the <laughs> thing, wouldn't it? Yeah, like, yeah, markets, um, yeah, meeting chefs. I always would try and find, like, a guide and just, like, get, like, a driver, someone who can really show me around, like, obviously, you know, in a car so you can sort of hit the spots. Like, and I love doing that early on because you can always go back to somewhere you really wanted to see. So, like, I just want to... It's just sort of because you're only there for a short time, you want to get a great understanding of like where am I and then like what do I want to see and then of course I'm prior to going like 
And that's what's so good about like Melbourne. Like there's such a diversity of people here. So if I'm doing, I don't know, let's say Chinese cuisine, there's plenty of Chinese restaurants or chefs out there in Melbourne. I go, I'm going here. Do you know anyone? Do you know anything? You know, could you tell me what do I need to try? And like before you go, you've got a list that you could be there for a year. Like it's really, it's just about that using those connections and seeing like, you know, as we spoke prior to me going to India, you you know, you gave me so many great tips and advice. And then you, you go like energized to mm. see all these things because, you know, you can ask someone who's like an expert in that with that knowledge it's already been and well, I was pleased to get the phone call because I think any traveler especially a foodie traveler yeah. you want people to share the same experience I had to stop myself sending you shit basically could, because couldn't I was just more. like I was like nah he's got enough he doesn't need any more yeah. I was going oh what about that oh what about that oh if he jumps on a plane or he gets in a car he gets on a bike he can go and see this yeah and I just went oh, that's enough he's got enough yeah but it, it happened but like that, how good is that that you can sort of speak to someone and they can almost give you like you know, this sort of advice and then you go and learn from it and then you're able to dictate that on a plate as well at the end of it. Like it's quite a fun idea. Like it really gets your creativity going. So when you when you put that menu on, obviously you've got a, a database of people that come in and they want yeah. something different. They want your experience on a plate. Do people come in and criticise? So if it's Israeli, for example. Yeah. You've got an Israeli community in Melbourne. Do yeah. you get, you know, that community turn up and go, Yeah. It's not, not right, Charlie. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like I think... Like, Add more this, take that out. Yeah, hundred percent. And like, it's like, how did that? You know, how did their mother, grandma, you know, husband, whatever, make it? And then it's like that. Some people believe that's the only way to make things. And it's like, you know, you might try something over there that they haven't tried. Or yeah, you definitely will get like the nitpickers. But you know, I think that will in any restaurant you're going to find that. I suppose. But like, we just a lot of people maybe assume that we're like absolute experts on each individual cuisine, but you're not really able to master any individual cuisine because you're only spending a four months on it. Like, you know, you probably know 2% of what there is to know about that one cuisine. So it's like, it's trying to celebrate that without being like, you know, you're not, you haven't grown up with a cuisine. So you're, you're just learning as well, I suppose. And in the same time, learning and teaching. How much life is there in this concept? So it was funny because I've had to work it out and I've, um, I reckon it's, it's solid around 50 to 55 um, cuisines that I would like really go, I would love to do that. And then after those, I reckon you sort of, I don't want to say without, you know, never want to offend anyone, but yeah, they're just not the ones that I'd be like, oh, that would be a great choice or something. I'd be like, I really want to learn about that. So, and how, how well, yeah, you can work it out if you just do the numbers, I suppose. Yeah, so it's probably three like cuisines 18, a year. Yeah, 17, 18 years sort of thing. Oh, it's a lot. It's a lot of dishes. It's a lot of cuisines. I think it's, it's a lot of travel. Oh, yeah, we can't complain about that. And, and through COVID, it just put everything on hold and will do for, you know, yeah, a while. And not because, you know, things aren't opening up, but because places probably you want to visit may not be opening up or could be risky in terms of proposition. It's absolutely. Like, you know, it's one of those things you just got to, you know, you got to work with what you've got. And I think, you know, obviously we're coming into um, our Indian menu. So India is next and that's, you know, we've bought ourselves four months there. I have visited enough countries that I could probably do something without actually doing the trip. But it's sort of the whole point is to go and have that experience. Like, you know, when you're traveling with the purpose of like, I want to learn something, it's a very big difference to traveling. It's like, you know, I'm just having a great trip or, you know, just want to be here and experience a holiday or whatever. I feel like, yeah, by traveling with that purpose, you get so much. So yeah. it is a shame, but I'm I'm sure like places will start to open, and you know, I think the world, everyone wants that normality back and all that. So for sure, it's you know, it's going to be you know, how I'll be on the first plane out of here. <laughs> what, what's on the hit list? 
oh, that's, I really want to go to Morocco. I've just got this. Mm. I don't know why. It's just like, you know, like when I didn't, so Israeli food, like Israel, the cuisine is built up. All of those Middle Eastern cuisines has some Moroccan influence, some Yemen influence. So it's got this like weird mixture that they make their own. And that's why like it is hard on the actual menu because you are showcasing other little bites as well. And some people may not have experienced that part. Like, you know, try went to this, when I was in Israel, I went to this market and I had this like Yemenite bakery that had like the most crazy bread. Like you've never seen <clears throat> these sort of shapes and sizes of breads. And then they were doing like, they were serving this like yellow turmeric style soup in one of them. It was just like bizarre food. Yeah, I'd love to go to Morocco. I just felt like they had like, when I was in Israel, I had like a little taste of what it will be like. See, we looked up, or I say we, I looked up uh, hummus just to yeah. see origin, right? Yeah. And then there's within it, you know, everybody jumps on. Oh, yeah. You know, and so you go Israeli hummus and then someone jumps on and goes, how can it be Israeli? Yeah. You know, it, it's it's Arabic, it's this, it's that, it's Yemeni, it's whatever. And you can, it's the wonderful thing about food is all of a sudden everybody's just pitching in. Oh, yeah. And so the origin becomes quite cloudy. I mean, obviously there's a right answer. Yeah. But it's, um, I like that about it. I yeah. like the argument, this well, controversy around But it. even like, you know, with Vietnamese food, like it was, um, you know, I was learning about like pho and there's like some, you know, history of like pot de feu and that's actually inspired that. And then you've got like banh mi's, which are in French baguettes. Like, you know, you've got this French influence in the food. So it's like, what was the Vietnamese cuisine like prior to that? And how has it changed? How has it developed? Because obviously those dishes have stayed yeah. and... What, there's Chinese, there's Cambodian. There's, everything's there. Yeah. Like it's just many borders. Thai. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's just, you know, that sort of old spice roots and everything. Um, it's just yeah, it, I don't know, there's such a great like like interplay between all these countries. And it's, but it's also interesting when you look and I'm not a great historian of food, but you know, what I noticed and I, I went to India because um of opportunity. I mean yeah. MasterChef was you know, had a huge market in, in India. My first visit, I was like, ooh, I don't know about this. And then I kind of got hooked. Yeah. But it's it's like any any other place. I mean, I love France. I love Italy or whatever. Like 14 times. Oh, something like that. Yeah. But it, it's just because, and now I'm a bit addicted. But yeah. then, you know, China, uh, Japan, I mean, yeah. you know, they're all on the list, yeah. right? Um, but what I, what I love about their food culture is like Ita anybody that's got, you know, a solid food culture. It could be Turkish, Lebanese, yeah. Italian. They're fiercely loyal about you know, what's theirs. Yeah. But what you see is it's like Italian food. The tomatoes only arrived relatively late yeah. in the piece. What were they doing beforehand? And with Indian food, that Arabic, Persian, Ar Iranian trail and the spice trail and the French and the Dutch and the English have all left their mark. Absolutely. And it's you see the same desserts yeah. or um, pastries or bread in in the Middle East, as you do, say, in India. Yeah, like, and I think even, like, you know, you've got sort of, like, noodles and then inspiring pasta, and then, you know, you've got this sort of almost like the national dish of, you know, Italy. It's all these different types of pasta, and then it's like where, where they got the knowledge from originally, and then how, and now it's so authentically Italian. It's amazing. Do you find um, now the more that you've travelled, the more you're cooking, that, that you're more familiar with techniques that have, are familiar to all of those cuisines, or are you constantly surprised? Like, that's, that's a great question, actually. I think there's a lot, there is a lot of similarities, but every time I go somewhere, I'll see something and it's always something dead simple. That's just like, whoa, that's pretty, pretty cool. Like even like when I was in Lebanon, I went last year and that was, um, they're like making these like sort of Armenian pastries and it's like they have this like little paddle and they like press the dough into it, bang it out. And then you've got these like shaped biscuits, right? And you just think 
like it's something that's so obvious, you know, you could get a cookie cutter and make it look like this. And, I, and I'm looking at the bishops thinking, God, how are they made those? It looks so beautiful. And then you just see this person just smacking them out like this. I was like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So, yeah, yeah it's that sort of like learning, you know, and how they, like everywhere you go, they've got something interesting. Have you had moments on your travels, I'm talk, not talking about food so much, but a, a personal interaction that, is, that you found very emotional that you, or that's changed how you approach things? I reckon one of just just did like an incredible travel experience for something that like, you know, made me sort of go, well, was um when I was in Peru, I was cooking. We did like a four-day sort of hike and I was cooking for the group I was with. We we're in this sort of shack on a hill with this like unbelievably beautiful Peruvian lady who is maybe like 60 years old, of course, just Spanish-speaking. And like I'm in the kitchen, we're cooking together over this like random like, sort of like campfire set up. Like it was really hilarious. But she's got all these guinea pigs running around our feet and she's like, and we cut something in any time, it's just throw it on the floor, throw it on the floor. So it's like, okay, I'm thinking, God, I'm just going to trash your kitchen. And she's what she's doing is she's trying to fatten up the guinea pigs for the next group. And I'm like, like that was a really like surreal, like when I sort of worked, like I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm just trashing this lady's place. And then I sort of, you know, was told why we're doing that. And you've got these beautiful little guinea pigs running around. Like there's moments like that that, you know, I think they're the emotional ones that make you think, wow, like and make you bring you back to a place. Yeah, was it pigs? The same yeah. in our culture, right? Absolutely. You know, they always said that even in the streets of, I think it was Florence, pigs were still roaming around the streets in the 1900s, right? Yeah. Because it was just, you know, people just chuck their garbage out, pigs eat it, and yeah. they're like the refuse system. Yeah, of the cows, guinea pig the cows in India. <laughs> the cows, yeah, uh, the dogs. The, the guinea pig's quite tasty though, isn't it? Delicious. So like in Peru, they've got like an almost charcoal chicken shop, but it's actually guinea pig all cooked over the spits and it's like guinea pig and chips. It's, it's, did you find bizarre. it weird eating? Because there's probably people are listening to this, even though the food isn't going serious. But oh, it's, yeah. our, it's our perception of food, right? And what we think is right to yeah. eat and what's not right to eat. Very similar to like, you know, to rabbit. You know, it's very sort of lean and it's actually, you know, like any meats cooked over fire, it's going to be delicious. So mm. I, th I actually thought it was, you know, it's definitely worth trying, but it's not something you'd go like, wow, I need to, you know, you'd be hung in the streets here if you tried to put it on a menu. You wouldn't be allowed. But, no. yeah, there's some really... Um, yeah, you know, it's it's great to try those different types of things. Like, are there things you wouldn't eat? Uh, do you like? Do you have moral code on what you would eat and what you wouldn't? Ah, uh, look, I've like obviously, you know, like I think in some like some Asian countries, for example, there can definitely be some, you know, different types of animals that might, you know, probably not we're not used to and wouldn't try. That's probably the one thing I'm not mad on. Um, there's certain types of like seriously fermented foods. Like, for example, like century eggs and stuff, just not really. Why is that? I don't know. Just century like, egg being the, you know, well, they used to age them in hay and horses' urine, I think. Yeah, like just, and, you know, you, and what's the one with the, like, um, it's like their fetus in it? Or, <laughs> oh, the balut, I think it is. Yeah. The, like the Indonesian. Those uh, yeah. And Vietnam too, I think they have them. Yeah, like I can Vietnam. see how, like, if you've grown up eating up. that, you probably think, like, I'm sure it's bloody tasty. So it's underdeveloped chicken, essentially, yeah. in an egg and they're a street food. Yeah, and you got like the little beak in it. Like it's pretty confronting. Yeah, it's crunchy. It's eggy yeah. and crunchy. And it's got a little juicy bit in it too that you're supposed to look. Dave's just going, <laughs> serious? But, it is, but isn't it strange how, you know, and, and a traveller like you, yeah. you, you're coming across all sorts of things that are just entirely normal. Yeah. I know when I was saying, I'm sure they're delicious. Like I'm actually, I've no doubt. But it's So just, what is it, texture? Is it the idea of what yes, it is? It's probably, yeah, a bit of both. Like even when you say there's like a little sort of juicy bit, that's already making my stomach turn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's not. It's not unlike someone saying, you know, but we threw the cheese away because it was mouldy. 
Absolutely. But it's blue cheese and it there, sticks there to high heaven. Plenty of yeah, there's like I would try some pretty funky cheeses where I'm sure there's plenty of people out there who would be like looking at it like that's off. Not a chance. Yeah. yeah you can't eat that. In yeah. cultures that it just doesn't make sense at all to have yeah. blue molds and of all different varieties, molds of many different varieties in milk. But then there's some like interesting ones like in Vietnam, like I've seen how they do the fish sauce process and you look at it and you're going like you the smell is like something nothing you've could ever imagine it's so intense and like the salt and the look of it looks just like it was seriously off but then it's strained out and you've got this like gold that's salty and just so everyone loves fish sauce so it's like it's just seeing the end you know the end product of what you can make from yeah. something so it's, it's fermentation isn't it yeah. and basically like lots of Little anchovies, essentially. They're anchovies. That's it, yeah. And fermented with salt in big barrels. Yeah, and you look at it and you're thinking, oh, God. Like so off fish juice. Yeah, off fish juice, but it is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what we were talking about? We were talking about the, the Israeli yep. um, menu that you put on. I think I came in for that. I'm, yeah, you did. I think yeah. I did. What did you learn when you were when you were over there that, that makes the difference? It's all about the tahini, actually. So, like, a lot of... Um, in Israel, they'll import a lot of their sesame from parts of Africa. So you've got this, basically, it's just beautiful, fresh sesame. Then they'll grind it using a stone grind, grounder, like, sorry, grinder always. So, like, when I was in Jerusalem, I actually went to this, like, it's like a factory, essentially. And this guy was with the longest stick you've ever seen, a sort of, almost like a fork, and he's raking the sesame, just toasting it all evenly. Like, you know how to toast a single tray of sesame evenly is pretty hard. This guy had about two tonnes going at once. <laughs> Then he scooped it all out and he's put it into the stone grinder and he's ground it. And you just get like, it's like that butter, you know, it's a, it is butter essentially because it's just ground fat. And then once you have that perfect product, then once you're mixing it with, you know, great sort of acidic lemon juice, you've got the chickpeas that are cooked nicely and like it's overcooking the chickpeas, a bit of cumin maybe. Like it's hard to not make something magical. Like it's such those simple ingredients but done really, you know, each step, each one of them is done perfectly and like, like anything that's like a, a nut or a fat, it can sort of sort of oxidize and almost get a bit of like a shelf taint. So like their real freshness over there of their tahini. So they've got this. Yeah, I've actually there's a place in Dandenong, I believe it is, that make their stone ground their own tahini, and it's like you can taste the difference. And that's what you know because a, a great hummus I think is about forty percent ish of good tahini, and that's what makes a difference. Wow. So then when you come back and you try and replicate that, yeah. Do you try and go from scratch or do you go, nah, I've got to find that place in Dandenong? So it's Find funny. the tahini and then I can go from there. Originally, we did do it from scratch. So we did it in our own sort of blenders because you can just grind it to that sort of consistency. But I found that actually the stone grind really does make the difference. So it was a learning probably a little bit after the menu had finished. And I'm like, right, I wish I was using that tahini, <laughs> not the one we were spending hours making. Because sometimes like there is products out there like a, a fish sauce, a tahini, you know, that you... If you can find the perfect product that's, you know, got the right sort of, especially with tahini, like you want that bitterness. And if you can find that, then it's perfect. See, we can never go to the supermarket again, really. Nah. It's a bit like I've recently, um, well, I say recently, I mean, it, I did a road trip, you know, when the fires were on yeah. and we went to um, Pumpkin Seeds Australia, which is up in the Ovens Valley. And they're the only grower of pumpkin seeds, a producer of pumpkin seeds in Australia. And it's a reminder that when you eat them, you go, ah, oh, that's what fresh, yeah. great quality pumpkin seeds supposed to taste like. Because then he said to me, every pumpkin seed we get in Australia, other than these ones, are from 
or processed through China. Yeah. Even the ones that say made in Turkey or yeah. produced in Turkey, manufactured in Turkey. And I went, I never knew that. And then when you go back and you eat the pumpkin seeds you got in your cupboard, you go, oh. And yeah. those so rancid tones and yeah. all of that makes sense. But that's what I thought pumpkin seeds just tasted like. It's a huge difference. That's why they weren't my favourite thing now. <laughs> they're like my favourite thing. Good so snap. do you find that you, you end up with these new standards of everything and then you go buy officials and go, oh, yeah. this is rubbish. What am I going to oh, do with this? Like absolutely. Like we're now with the Indian menu coming out, we're like on the hunt for good <laughs> spices. So it's like, you know, finding like, you know, there's a place out in Clayton, there's a few Indian shops there. There's one in Springvale that like, you know, we're looking for these places where they're going to have like the freshest, like direct from India spices. You know, we don't want them passing a third party and getting butchered. We want like the spice. And it's like, you know, if you look in your cupboard, I'm sure you got spices that are two years old and it's like, like everyone, but then when you find the fresh stuff, you really realize why they're so incredible. And, you know, you probably use a little bit less of them. They amp up the dish like no tomorrow and that's what you're going for. Yeah. I, I When I first started going to India, I could never understand why I couldn't make what they were making. Yeah. But not only was it the spices, but, the, the one chef said to me, it is so important to add them in the right order. Yeah. Do not change the order that's in the recipe. And he yeah. was very specific about that. And he goes, surely it can't make that much difference. And I'm quite impatient at home and I'll just make it. And yeah. I go, oh, it doesn't taste the same. And I go back and make it again. I go, oh, yeah. I've got to put the turmeric in now and I've got to put the yeah. chili powder in there and I can't put that bit until the end. Yeah. And there's like a lot of, I believe there's like a bit of a, that sort of, you can taste in food when people have put that care and effort into getting the things right in the right order. Like it does, it does, it's not even just almost about the taste, it's about like the sort of magic in the dish. They're actually following it correctly and, you know, really focusing that effort. Like when we did Mexican cuisine, we we're making moles and it's the same sort of idea. You really need to like know the sort of, um, yeah, the actual order to get it right and, you know, how, how much do you toast something? Is something better not toasted? Is something better at the end? And it makes like, the world of difference. Would Mexican cuisine be one of the most mid- misunderstood on, on the planet, do you think? Yeah, it's, it's such a, like, <laughs> I reckon I've... Most people just go as nachos. And, I mean, we've got we've had good Mexican restaurants in Melbourne, but it's, still. It's hard. Like, it, it's one of those ones that, like, obviously the street foods are exceptional. Everyone loves the sort of, yeah, taco. And you can, you, realistically, you can find them all throughout Mexico. And to be honest, they're all good, like every one of them. But I think that, like, Mexican cuisine is, like, another... 20 more steps to understand it. Like everything I saw over there was just like, yeah, it really blew my mind actually because I was, you know, have that sort of naive like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm expecting this. And then you don't realise like the layers of what's behind it. Can you think of an example? Definitely. I've Like one thing I've just revert, like those moles, that was probably the one thing. Like you see these shops and they're like almost like pyramids that they've built and they're like all, you know, one will be made from guava, one will be made from tamarind, one will be made from this, this and then like, you grab that and then that's the base of what you're cooking. And I just didn't really understand how that worked. Like they've got these, it's almost like... So one mole does not fit all dishes. No, exactly it's, right. And they use it, they were using it almost like, like you would a curry paste in some of the dishes. Like they're grabbing something and you've got this like sort of sickly sweet like guava mole and then you'll put it into something and finish it and it's like just makes the most ridiculous sauce and you, don't, you can't work out why. You're like, wow, that's just, you know, just sort of adds so much to it. Did you try replicating that? No. Y- uh, yep. Yeah, we made some moles, um, but like once again, it's not, it's just not the same. Like I really was like, you know, you can like when you're there, you can, they give you like these little spoons and you can actually taste each one and sort of pick what you're doing for what element you're cooking. And like that was pretty, you know, it's pretty impressive. And a mole will have like the one we had on the menu had 39 ingredients in it. It was the recipe we got given. And like actually when you like did it correctly, followed it, like you really could individually taste it. And it was quite a like, 
you know, like when if I said I want to put 39 ingredients in a dish, you'd look at me like you're crazy. Yeah. But then once it was like combined and done properly, it was like that changed my perspective on, you know, what is simple and what is not. So the idea of simplicity but complexity behind it. Exactly. And that was a, that was a big move because I, I went to this one incredibly amazing fine dining restaurant. They do like an aged mole. So they treat it like a master stock and they heat it up every day. So it's like 1,200 days old, this mole. And their dish is literally the mole. And then in the middle, they have the actual mole they made that day. So one's brown and dark in colour and then the other one's like really light. And you can taste the difference between them. And that was that's their dish. And they give you a couple of tortillas to eat it with. And it like... You know, sitting at this dish, it was like a really crazy experience to try something that's like so, you know, it's two purees pretty much on a plate, but the level of effort and stuff that goes into them and, oh, yeah, that's just, it was really mind-blowing. Dave, get my hazmat suit, book me a ticket. (laughs) I'm off. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. If, if we rewind the clock, and it's really weird talking about rewinding the clock from, you know, with such a young man with a, with a restaurant and a restaurant that's so well known, but where did this all start for you? Like, to be honest, I think it probably all started by just being really, like, at a young age inspired by, like, the actual, you know, the whole idea of the industry. I was really impressed by, you know, it's sort of that, I don't want to say, like, militant, but it had that, like, real, you know, level of consistency, respect, you know, seeing these chefs who were so their driving force was they were so clear on like wanting to see something, yeah. you know, delivered perfectly. And But what chefs? I mean, what are we talking about here? I like, mean, had you left I mean, school she, and... No, no, this was probably just before I was leaving school. Like for, big, big inspiration would be Gordon Ramsay. I absolutely love him. I think he's amazing. Um, and I do think that like, you know, it's that level of care they put into what they do. I really love that. There's, so, you know, there's a lot of different careers out there and a lot of, you know, I don't know all industries, but... You know, I feel like chefs, when they care, they really care. And I love that about they've got such pride in their work. Was there anybody in your family or around no. you that was a chef? No, n- not at all, actually. What do your mum and dad do? What are they? Uh, so my mum used to manage a little retail store. My dad was the real estate agent. So, right. Yeah, and both terrible cooks. <laughs> so, so cooking in your house was? Uh, yeah, so the same, you know, Taco Tuesday. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, and then there was bloody like um, sandwich. What was, the worst thing, what was the worst thing you used to eat at home? Oh, God, that's, that's, there's quite a few. <laughs> <laughs> Just some really average stuff. Come on, we want to know. Average I like stir fries. I can like, tell you some bad stuff too. <laughs> yeah. Average stir fry? What's yeah. in an average stir uh, fry? Just like a really just sloppy chicken stir fry with, a, you know, it's a sauce that's either way too thick or way too thin, like just not, it's not any, nice. It's got any ginger, any garlic, any nah, fresh... No, no love. No love. <laughs> yeah. For frozen vegetables, was it that bad? No, no, no. Definitely not frozen. Okay. Yeah, but like... Because I, I know people that, you know... Yeah. Uh, you know, to be honest, they frozen use frozen veg- vegetables, yeah, you know, and just stir fry them. Would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I don't know, like the... Yeah, no one in my family was necessarily a chef or anything. I just... I was really inspired by, like, the, the idea of the industry. I think you get, like... You know, it's good to sort of find your passion and go, right, what do I really like about it and you know I like cooking up I like the challenge that like you could always learn something but hang on a minute so but there must be did you get a job did you yeah uh, so I okay uh, yeah 14 nine months I started working at Stokehouse so I was working right. downstairs there and I was doing like the pizzas and 
did like the fryer section, fryer section there on a busy Sunday. That was yeah. scary. Busy restaurant. Yeah, be incredible. Racked like, and stacked. Oh, yeah. Like, and it's just, you know, a hot, hot kitchen, St Kilda Beach, 200 covers in the dining room. You know, like most chefs have had an experience like that before. It's it's grueling work, but it's, you know, it was exciting and you're like working in a team. You sort of, because I was obviously very young and sort of everyone was about sort of anywhere from 23 to 35 or something in, the, in that kitchen. But like there's sort of camaraderie between everyone and, you know, you sort of, because you're young and you sort of, Working with these older people, you're like mesmerized by what you're learning, and you know, obviously the stories everyone's telling. It like yeah, it was pretty an international crew, like a whole mixed bunch of different people. Yeah, from all over plenty the of people from yeah, they were from New Zealand, they were from um, Scotland, the UK. Like you know, you're meeting all these people and hearing about like their sort of background. You know, why they're all here. Like a lot have been traveling through, and I want to spend a year in Australia. You know, great. I want to do a summer season or whatever, and it was good. To, like. It's just a good industry like that. You know, it's never boring. But that that would have been a was that a weekend job to earn money. It was, and then I actually was working there um, after school on weeknights as well. Yeah, so you but if it's, if it's a weekend job earning money and you're at school, surely your parents are going, you got school to finish and you got, you know. Yeah, but I was pretty much like, like to be honest, at school I was pretty just couldn't have been more casual <laughs> about the whole thing. I was just a very like, I probably undervalued myself because I'm sure I could have been very good at it, but I just never really applied myself. I was always sort of more wanting to, you know, play some sport or hanging out with friends or even, you know, once I had discovered my work, you know, I really was working. I would have been doing probably a good 30 hours a week, you know, and my school week as well. And, I, you know, I really wanted to do it. I really enjoyed it. I could work Saturday, Sunday, both doubles and loved every minute of so it. So why wasn't school I just giving you that? Because obviously you're a very driven individual. You're a driven yeah. young man. You, you had ambition. I mean, to open a restaurant at 22. 22 ain't that different. To 16, 17 really, is it? No, not, no, not at all. And I think I was just like, yeah, I just love the the whole idea of working. I think it work was to me more exciting than probably school. And, I, and you know, like when you are young and you work, especially with, you know, different people in a team, like you actually are learning while you're doing as well. Like I think you learn so much from working, from just working in general, you know, like whether it's how to do things, you know, like actual, you know, how to speak to people, how to manage your time, how to, how to delegate, how to run a section, all those things, they're all great skills that are teaching you where school is, you know, incredible. And like there's so many jobs out there where they're, you know, in lots of different fields where school is essential, but cooking is not, not really. Like some of the best chefs in the world, you know, best cooks in the world probably can't, you know, can barely read and write some of them. You know, it's just, it's cooking is like a, such a good skill to learn and you can do amazing things with it. Yeah, I suppose if you're making sense of it, some of the most delicious things, I mean, if it's off a street vendor, for example, yeah. you know, you go to India, Yeah, it's purely tactile, it's, That's you know. It. And they've taught, they've taught themselves or they've learned from someone else and they're just delivering this, like, exceptional, you know, dish. And, like, you know, maybe they hadn't had, like, you know, like in Australia we're very lucky, like, most more than most people would be going to school mm. and have opportunities where in these other countries not always the case, but... Food, something that, you know, if you can make something incredible and delicious, like, you know, you've got so far you can go. Yeah. Puts, yeah. It puts a smile on people's faces. I think that's the, exactly right. You know, that's the thing that connects everybody, isn't it? Was there a moment that, um, you know, you just, the penny dropped, you know, in amongst the getting hit on the fryer section and, you know, progressing into more of a full time role? Yeah. Was there a penny drop moment where you just said, okay, this is. This yeah, it was, pro- it was probably like slightly before <laughs> this, but the, the one thing I think that was a real. Game changer for me was when I um I went and did a stage at Gordon Ramsay's Royal Hospital Road and I spent three weeks there cooking in the kitchen and that was like that to me was you know you're at the top of the game seeing a three Michelin star kitchen in action. And How did you get in? 
to be honest, I just emailed. Yeah, my my mum said my mum said, well, you know, if you really want to go, and I was sixteen, I said, she said, why don't you just email? And I said, okay, you know, da 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 da. I'd love to come and spend some time in the kitchen working for free. Explain what I'd been doing, and I was very passionate. And then they like, okay, and I was, you know, of course, I'm like, Jesus. So I went and did that. I want to just just slow you down there for a second. Yeah. I wonder how many people apply to do a stage at Gordon Ramsay's Hospital Road Restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Thousands. Uh, yeah, I think it. I, I think sometimes you just things just happen, don't they? You get lucky, like you know, you have a just take a punt, and someone says yes, and you, I was taken by surprise. I'm thinking, oh, okay, now I got to go. <laughs> yeah, now I got to go. So I went and did that, and luckily the the sous chef was an Australian guy called Matt Abe, and he's incredible. Like probably one of the best Aussie chefs there is out there. Like you know, he's like just how he works. He's sort of his knowledge, his dedication, like he's he's absolutely amazing. And he was the sous chef at the time. Sorry, I think he was, sorry, junior sous chef at the time. And he had worked at Vudemont. So he said to me, okay, well, when you get back to Australia, like you should go and try and work there. Vudemont's an incredible restaurant and explain that to me. So I was sort of like, okay. So I think that was the ex, that was the best part because I'd learned so much from Royal Hospital. And when I say I learned, I was in the corner picking chervil for three weeks straight. So I learned how to pick chervil pretty well, but you know, it was the whole energy of the place and seeing everyone, you know, come in and, you know, they work hard. Like they really yeah. put in there. It's at the brutal end of the working scale. And it was incredible though. And you know what though? They <clears throat> absolutely loved it. Like they yeah. lived and breathed it. Like the whole, you know, it's like a, I imagine like a soccer team or, you know, this AFL team. They're all, that's what it felt like, that real, like we're a team. Each person's playing their role in the team and they're pushing the restaurant board. Like every plate of food that left the pass was like, really like that you could see from spending the day there how much effort went into it everyone had done their their part and then you got this finished product and it was just every yeah. single time it left the past like their food they were putting out was just yeah. the consistency i think the, the thing that most people find it difficult to understand is that how critical the perfection is and that nothing else even i uh, have never lived up to that kind of expectation and it's all too even as a young chef i think i remember doing a stage at that same building, but yeah. it was Le Ton Claire, which yeah. was Pierre Kaufman. Shows you how old I am. <laughs> and I remember them. St- I started at, uh, so I was at the Connell, and then I went and did a stage there and at uh, the Gavroche and uh, Le Souffle, which I, where I ended up going. But even the Gavroche was kind of an easy gig compared to Le Ton Claire. There must yeah. be something about that epicenter, that site there. I don't know what it is. And Gordon Ramsay, I think, m- may have worked there yeah. with uh, I believe Pierre Kaufman. Yeah. And I started at, I think, 6.30 in the morning and I finished at like 1 o'clock yeah. and there was no thanks. Nobody really talked much. It was just ruthless. And even back changed. then. <laughs> yeah, and even <laughs> back then I just went, is it really worth it? And for most people it's not. Yeah. But I think you have to respect and allow people, yeah. if they want to do it, to be able to do that. And, like, the level of chefs, like, you know, I'm sure you've met plenty of people who had gone through that. And, like, mm. the, the chefs who had worked there, like, what they've all gone on and achieved, it's like a breeding ground for these just, yeah, like... very you know, best in the world. Yeah, the Michelin star chefs from globally. Like, they might go there and they'll move back to Japan and open something and, you know, before you know it, they're a superstar. Like, it's just what happens. That was excellent. And then, obviously, coming back and getting a job at Udemon, like, I was an apprentice there, and that was... Once again, that was, to, for me personally, it was my favourite job ever I've ever had was Vudemont. Have your parents always encouraged you? Uh, yeah. They I, must have. I mean, you couldn't. Yeah, I think they were like sort of, yeah, you know, like if that's what you want to do, like definitely go for it. And then, you know, and we're behind me the whole way saying. Did they not try and say, but, you know, maybe this would be better, I think. It, I think at first, because, you know, I did go to a grammar school and I think when a boy who's gone to a grammar school says I want to become a chef, especially, and this is, you know, a good 10 years ago now, that like that was probably a bit like, really? Like. 
a chef is a, you know, now as, you know, and you've been so, such a huge part of that phenomenon, but chefs are so respected now and it's such a fantastic career where, you know, I'm sure when you started being a chef is probably the other guy in the bottom, in the basement, just sweating, cooking food and that's it. Like it's had the meteoric rise. I remember, um, you know, and I talk to people that have had, I mean, we had Neil Whitaker on the podcast, for example, we were talking about his experience of London in, in publishing. Yeah. I didn't have that experience. <laughs> yeah. He was going to posh parties and nightclubs and I was just working my ass off. You were lucky to and pay I, your rent. I was lucky to pay my rent and feed myself. <laughs> yeah. And I said, Neil, we, we had different experiences. Um, so why why did you make that decision to, because if you're following a traditional path and, and that inspiration from, you know, Royal Hospital Road to View de Mont, now you're on a traditional tra- trajectory. Yeah where you might spend 10, 15 years perfecting your craft. Yeah. Why did you decide not to do that? Because then, you know, you would expect, for people that don't know, you know, Shannon would be going right now, go here, and then yeah. get yourself off to France or, Yeah, you know, get, go to France and, you know, come back to be a sous chef for a few years. Yeah. Like, to be honest, I um, I, th- I think I just had big aspirations. I just really wanted to have a have a crack, and I think that, like, being young is also a benefit because you are very naive. Like, you're probably not aware of, like, when you open a business and like, you know, you're starting to, you know, paying for all the, you know, the build and all that, it's all exciting and stuff, but you don't really see if anything goes, you're not thinking what could go wrong. You're thinking like, okay, this is going to be a fun experience. So I think that that's probably, yeah, that naivety was, it's probably the best thing for me because I wasn't nowhere near aware of what could go wrong. But now you're kind of a wizened old restaurant. (laughs) How long have you been in business now? Almost four years. That's good. Yeah. And second restaurant? Uh, yes, so we've got um, we've got another place in the city. So that's obviously with the current thing, we're closed there until September. So that's it's just a very small little takeaway. And then our new thing, the Atlas Masterclass, which is our sort of yeah, like tell online. Us, yeah, tell us about that because during COVID, that was um, as you switched into that. I went, okay, this is interesting. What's what's he yeah. going to make out of this? Well, it was funny. Like when, like every restaurateur, when the whole coronavirus thing, especially with the you know, the government announcements, it was getting very, like, tricky. It was, like, every day things were changing. Like, you're pulling your hair out going, oh, my God, like, can we open, can we not? And then the, especially the last week before the sort of lockdown happened, it was, like, even if you were doing well, reservations were just cancelling galore. You know, the, the guests were starting to go, oh, I don't know if I want to go out. And so we fair enough, you know, absolutely. So, like, we were all very, you know, what do we do, what do we do? And I think... A lot of people were doing takeaway, a lot of people doing this, a lot of people, you know, doing all different things. And I, I just thought, like, it just wasn't part of, like, what I wanted to do would be to do takeaway. It's not really what our brand's about. Like, I couldn't imagine an Atlas experience at home with serving takeaway. Like, it's not – it definitely works so well for so many people and I've ordered so many different varieties of different, mm. and I've loved them, but it's just not what I wanted to do. So I, w- I was very much on the fence going, I don't know. And my girlfriend messaged me actually and said, oh, this, you know, would you consider doing something like an online cooking class and maybe do this and this? And I was like, I actually farmed it off a bit. I was a bit like, oh, no, I don't think that's a good idea. And then um, anyway, the how it happened was the next morning I thought, I sort of, you know, slapped myself and thought, okay, no, I've got to do something. I can't just sit sit around. So I put an um, Instagram post up and I said, oh, the Atlas Masterclass, um, taking expressions of interest, would you be interested in getting an um, ingredient box delivered to your door and doing a live cooking thing where we make dishes from around the world. That was pretty much the pitch. Mm. We had about 50... Good market research. I like it. Yeah, yeah exactly. It? Get it's some just... instant feedback, find out what people want. And we had 50 emails in about the first 45 minutes and I was like, whoa, okay, this is this has struck a bit of a chord. So then um, so I said, okay, well, we've committed now. So we filmed the... I got a film crew who I'd worked with before and filmed the videos. 
and then the next Tuesday we um did the boxes. So we sold the boxes and like you know the, the amount of learning curves in what we've done, like. To go from a so it seemed easy. You thought this can't be that hard. I bet it brought me back to day one of the restaurant. Like <laughs> literally, I've never felt more like an apprentice in my entire life because you know you've got to. It's there's so much to it because you make the you make the videos, then you've got to make the dishes on a large scale. You've got to make them easy enough that guests will understand them and that someone at home can recreate it. So you can't go too crazy and you can't. But you don't want to do something boring. I make anyway. Yeah. So it's like. There's a big fine line and then like just little things like when we started to pack the boxes the first week, we laid all the boxes out and then filled them all and like missed a lot of ingredients. So then we're driving around (laughs) fixing ingredients and then the next week we did something fairly similar and made the same mistake and then it turned into a let's do a production line and then now we have this like incredible (laughs) system where we'll have like 20 people on the line filling them slightly. So your job is to put this in. Yeah, you're, you're Model T Ford. That's what happened. Honestly, yeah, yeah. like that. That was actually a big you're putting the wheels on. Yeah, because yeah. like you just said, like the Ford factory, everyone used to be an expert in everything, and they worked out if everyone sort of knows one task mm. perfectly, you make a lot less mistakes. So it yeah. was a, it was a huge learning curve, and it's been it's something obviously will keep going. I've like loved the experience, but it's a completely like you know it's a way of reaching new people in a new way, and and I think that like Atlas has always been about like pushing the boundary a little bit and trying something a bit different. And I think the industry is so ready for all these different concepts. And, you know, I'm sure you'll speak and have spoken to other people who will have said, oh, you know, during the the um, isolation that we've we've done this thing and it's really worked and it's something we're going to keep doing. And, it's, you know, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. I mean, you're a young person in the industry. Where do you think it's going? I, I think... Because it's been very turbulent, hasn't it? I mean, we've had yeah. the, the fall of George... Colin Barris, who's yeah. a very close friend of mine, obviously. But, you know, to see a, a hopes and dreams of a big business like that collapsing is terrible for me. Yeah. But then obviously you you get a uh, a sense that, you know, people are really upset about what they just discovered the industry was about. I mean, yeah. we, we, we've been in it. We yeah. know what, we know, you know, the idea of working for free yeah. will shock a lot of people, like yeah. going to London and working for free. But it's just yeah. stage is a normal thing. I spent nine months of my life in yeah. a row working for free. And I paid Some people want to do it. I wanted yeah. to do it, but yeah. other people don't want to do it. It's quite a shock. Why would you do that? Yeah. I don't get it. I so it doesn't it. fit, does it, anymore? This idea of stages and, uh, you know, being passionate is enough doesn't fit anymore yeah. with, within, with, with modern standards of the workplace. Where, where do you think it – because you're going to be in it for a lot longer than I am. I'm already on the outside. Yeah. Look, I think I think more and more like, you know, like a, a great example is we actually just took on someone who's doing our HR and like just like any restaurant out there, like, you know, after, of course, the unbelievable mm. problems that happened with George because it was, you know, such a shame mm. and, you know, anyone... And not just the, George, by the way. Yeah. I mean, you know, Woolies, for example, yeah. $330 million, but everybody's still going to Woolies, but for some reason yeah. didn't want to go to George's restaurants. Yeah, well, so, I, I have so much respect for George, mm. not funny, and I think he's an amazing chef and... You know, like it is when you're running a day-to-day, you know, a brick-and-mortar business like a restaurant, like the moving parts in it is so hard to manage. Like, you know, whether it's yeah, whether it's time and attendance, whether it's the, the quality of the food, the guest experience, like there's so many things that are happening and it really is tough. So I think that we are trying to find a way to be like extremely compliant but also wanting to keep, you know, pushing and moving forward. So it's like I think the industry is definitely having to – you know, how do I say it? Like having to be very aware of what's going on. Like during the isolation thing, I think everything just went out the window. Like it was a real shift because before it was very much an, an employer, like, sorry, employee, like what are, what are the rights? And then all of a sudden there was no jobs and it was like a, I'll do anything for free almost. Like it was pretty, 
it was a big shift. So like that was the, I think coming out of that, where I think it might be a bit more of a fairer playing field. It'd be a weird thing to say, but do you think it's made operators like really assess uh, where they're going, what they're doing, and absolutely how they're going to take it forward? Yeah, and I think people now like you know we're we're very lucky in the sense with Atlas, it's always been a set menu experience. So we don't have wastage, we don't have you know, we know how many guests we're doing. And I think that more and more people will move towards that because it is a viable business model where you can actually, you know, if you know that you've got, say, 50 guests, this is what they're going to eat, this is this, you know, this is how many staff you'll need, You that makes it very easy. It's like I think that choice will start to be a lot more limited. And you might have to pay a premium yeah. for choice. Do you think that's a reasonable expectation? Do you imagine that that's what's going to happen? Let's say... Five years' time, what do you reckon the Melbourne dining scene will look like? I do think that people are going to move more towards having like this is what we offer, sort of almost take it or leave it. And I, I don't see that as a bad thing. So best best thoughts for the future for for your industry? Yeah, I th- like I think it's all pretty positive, but I think that restaurants are going to go not only just like what can we do in our restaurant, but what can we do beyond our four yeah. walls? Yeah, I, I'll rephrase that. What, what's the best without COVID or anything? Yeah. What do you imagine to be the future of, of your industry? Um, I, I just think different experiences. I think like, you know, the restaurant experience is going to be one aspect of it where it's a it's an at-home experience, an at-home cooking experience. It's, a you know, maybe an, an event or something that's probably a little bit more, I think there'll be a lot more different types of food experiences. And restaurants won't just be going to, um, you know, you don't just go to the restaurant. It might be a, more of a brand where they offer other things. And I think they're going to, restaurants will become a bit more than just, you know, a place to go and eat. I love that idea. It's like modern thinking, you know, that we haven't had before. Yeah. That, you know, other industries have had. We think differently about all sorts of things. Yeah. Thinking differently about restaurants is something that you hope for. Well, it's one of the, look, it's probably the last industry that hasn't gone online. And I think people are now tapping and finding ways. Like you've seen, you know, so many different restaurants, um, you know, start to do different things, whether it's, you know, merchandise, whether it's um, ingredients, whether it's the dishes at home, whether it's, you know, you can buy their sauces, you can buy this. And, like, how cool is that? Like, you know, 10 years ago, a restaurant offering, you know, one of their famous sauces, you'd be thinking, what? And now yeah. it's like, you know, you might one day you might see in a supermarket, you might see different restaurants, ingredients or, you know, things they've made. Like, you know, if there's a beautiful Thai restaurant in Melbourne and they sold their curry face, I would be going there to buy it. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would be too. You know what, Charlie, I think we could talk for a long time and I love, you know, food and travel just, you know, as I've got older, I mean, it's if I could do it for the rest of my life, yeah. that's what I've been doing. And, you know, starting at a very young age and, Doing what you've done, so clever. I wish I'd, you know, had your <laughs> brain because to to build your business around what you love, not just the food, but the travel and that idea of bringing something back. And how many cuisines did you say? You, you so we're up to number twelve now, and then fifty five to go. Was it eighteen uh, years? Did you yeah, say? Yeah, yeah, about eighteen years. So. Uh, we we got a way to go. <laughs> yeah, we'll have it. to do them again. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I love it, and you know, don't forget, Atlas is back open. Yeah, um, masterclasses. Actually, jump on Instagram. You know, that's source of all information. Yep. Go to your Instagram page and find out everything that's happening in your life and the restaurants. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for the chat. I really appreciate it. So my tips and tricks, and when you talk to Charlie, I love the fact that he says, you know, when you're trying to recreate something that you've seen, you've tasted, you know, you can't believe the level of skill, you know, when you're overseas and you come back and you've got to recreate that thing and you can't get it quite right. It's a lot of weight of responsibility. You know, the way he talked about the tahini and how it's made and toasted and it's delicious and totally unlike anything you can buy here, then really we're all starting from way behind if we want to make hummus, aren't we?
On the brighter side, you can make hummus at home using tin chickpeas that will be way, way better than anything you can buy off the shelf. Trust me, even though people are throwing their hands up in the air and going, no way, Gaz. So here you go. Open the can, drain and rinse the chickpeas well. Take maybe half a clove of garlic, the best tahini paste you can buy. Put two or three good spoonfuls of tahini in a blender. Add the chickpeas, add the garlic, add a good pinch of salt, some ground cumin, and enough water to make that baby spin and liquidize until it's the smoothest hummus you can make. You can add a little bit more water. And this sounds crazy. If you really want to make it smooth, and yeah, a Thermomix or a great blender is going to make a difference, but if you peel the little skin off the chickpeas when you open the can, you may have never noticed that before, but it's there. You'll end up with a little handful of chickpea skins, chuck them in the bin, then throw the chickpeas in the blender, and it'll be as smooth as silk. You can season that with lemon juice, you can add a little more cumin, you can add a little chili powder if you want, just things that appeal to your taste. Trust me, dead easy, and you'll never buy it again. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Darcy Thompson.